Hi, this is Pastor Charlie coming to you from the offices of Glory of Christ Fellowship. We had an issue with our recording this Sunday, and so I'm coming to you in this way. But uh, we cherish the Word of God, and so we wanted to get an audio version of the message to you. And I pray that uh, that even though you know preaching to an empty room <laughs> makes a little bit of a stilted message, uh, we trust that the Word of God will be powerful in your life. So let me just pray, and then I'll share the message with you for this week. Lord, I thank you so much for this message. Lord, it's a powerful one, and it's also a heavy one. And so I pray that you would help me now, Father, as I speak. I pray that you would help us as we listen to the word. I pray that we would receive it well and with open hearts. I pray that we would be like the good soil, Lord, that graciously receives the seed and then bears 30 and 60 and 100 fold. And I pray, Father, that we would be um, guarded from the ways of the devil and of the world and of the flesh. And I pray that we would be guided into the ways that you would have us go. Oh, Father, your ways are the best ways. Your ways are the right ways. And I pray that now you would use this piercing word to guide our lives. And we thank you for what you'll do in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. To obey is better than sacrifice. To listen to the Lord is better than offering things to the Lord. To carefully do what God has said is better than doing things that we think would be pleasing to Him. Indeed, to obey is better than sacrifice. Beloved, this is a very serious issue because the Lord says that whenever He speaks and we then set aside his words in favor of our own words or in favor of those of others, that we are committing the sins of rebellion and divination, the sins of presumption and idolatry. We are essentially setting up in our lives, in some way or other, an altar to some God. And at that altar we make sacrifices and we pray prayers and we look for Um, wisdom and counsel. We substitute at that altar the living God with something else or someone else who has come to serve as our functional God. You see, the issue of disobedience is that the, the only way that it works is that we turn away, deliberately turn away from what the Lord has said and turn towards something else that someone else has said, whoever that someone else is. And this is why God links disobedience with divination. This is why he links disobedience with idolatry. It is the worship of false gods. And the issues of obedience and disobedience become even more complicated in my view when we when we begin to live our lives in a religious community and we begin to live lives that are filled with religious activity. And the reason I say that is because we can so easily fool ourselves into thinking that the things we're doing in the name of God are in fact pleasing to God. We can sanitize our rebellion with things that seem to be Christian. And then we can take those things to the Lord and and justify ourselves by saying things like, See, Lord, I was only doing what was pleasing to you. Here it is in your word. Here's the thing that you said, and here's the thing that I did. Or we can say to the Lord, as I have heard people say over the years, Lord, I didn't see that passage the way that most people do. I have a different interpretation of that passage. 
And that's why I did this or that. So we're, in essence, rebelling against God, but then we know how to use religious language to, to excuse ourselves. We're sanitizing rebellion with religion. This is a great danger. Or if there happens to be some humility in our hearts at the moment, we can say, Lord, you're right, I did the wrong thing, but I know that you're a gracious God and a forgiving God, and I, I trust that you'll forgive me. So in other words, we can presume upon the grace of God as a way of just getting whatever it is that we want. Beloved, this is like divination. This is like idolatry. This is like setting up an altar in our home and sacrificing sacrifices and offering prayers and looking for wisdom and counsel. And may the Lord help us to beware of our own hearts because we are masters of minimization. We are our masters of disguise. And the truth of the matter is that we are these things from a very, very young age. You don't even have to teach a child to hide from his or her parents the things that he or she has done wrong. They seem to have this instinct in them. And the older we get, the better we get at this. We become very sophisticated in our ability to minimize our sin or disguise it. So we would do well today, beloved, to hear the word of the Lord. To obey is better than sacrifice. To listen to the Lord is better than offering things to the Lord. To carefully and prayerfully do what the Lord has said is better than doing things that we think will be pleasing to God. That's what today's message is about because that's what 1 Samuel 15 is about. So let's turn our attention now to that text and see what the Lord has to say. One day, the word of the Lord came to Samuel, and we know that because at the beginning of chapter 15, he sought out Saul, and he said this in verse 1. The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Or as the Hebrew more literally puts it, listen to the voice of the words of the Lord. The reason that Samuel said to Saul that he had anointed him king is because he was trying to remind Saul that he served under the authority of God. God was about to say some very difficult things to Saul through Samuel, and Samuel needed to remind this king that he was not in authority over himself. He was, in fact, in authority under God and in authority underneath the prophet of God. So again, Samuel is trying to establish his authority, his authority, because he's got something very difficult to say, and Saul has got to have a submissive heart. Second thing is that I think the reason Samuel was a little redundant here and told Saul to listen to the voice of the words of the Lord is because he was trying to capture Saul's heart with God's heart. In other words, Samuel wasn't there to just make an announcement to the king. He wasn't there to just pass on information to the king. The Lord was not interested in simply downloading data into Saul's brain. Rather, the Lord was interested in capturing his heart and capturing his soul so that Saul would do everything God was about to command him to do. Saul was going to need to trust the Lord because he was going to receive one of the most difficult commands that, that you can imagine. And so what I see Samuel doing is trying to awaken the spirit of the king so that he'll have a heart to listen to God. And having done his best to awaken Saul's heart, Samuel said this in chapter 15, verse 2. 
Thus says the Lord God of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Beloved, that is a very hard word. God just commanded Saul to completely destroy a people. Or if I can put it in modern terms, and I I think it is fair to put it in these terms, God commanded Saul to commit genocide. And the Lord had no plans to stay his hand as as he did with Abraham and Isaac, for instance. And while our, our impulse might be to quickly pass by a text like this or to, to try to sort of superficially explain it away, I think that we're actually better served by slowing down and prayerfully meditating on it and then coming to understand both the heart and the actions of the Lord. Last week, someone from another part of the country saw a Facebook advertisement for my new book called Living by Faith, and he posted in the comments section a list of Bible quotes one of which was 1 Samuel 15, 1 through 3. And then after those Bible quotes, he simply wrote this. He said, there's no more need for context or for interpretation. Your Bible is clear. Your God is evil. I was really surprised uh, to see that on my book's advertisement. But I quickly removed the comment because it's just, to my mind, not the place to deal with things like that. But I noticed that just a couple of uh, hours later, he put that, post back up on on uh, the advertisement and so I unfortunately I had to remove it and then block him from being able to comment on any of our our posts at glory of Christ and uh, to be very honest with you I would much rather have reached out to him and had a discussion with him to figure out really where he's coming from and if he was interested in conversation I would have been glad to have a conversation with him because I, I don't begrudge the question I just again don't think that that was the place for the comment But the reason I bring this up is just to say this, that we have both internal and external reasons as to why we should not quickly pass by texts like this. We have both internal in our hearts and in the church, and then also external in the world reasons to slow down and to prayerfully meditate and to come to understand the heart and actions of God in a a text like this. I think that in the coming days we're going to see more and more of this kind of argument gaining strength and it's going to be more and more difficult for us to answer it. What I mean is that texts like 1 Samuel 15, 1 through 3 are going to be used to compare Jews and Christians to people like ISIS and uh, texts like 1 Samuel 15, 1 through 3 are going to be used to say that the Bible is no different than the Quran. When in truth these things are, are very, very different But these texts, again, will be used as a weapon. And many people who don't know the Bible well will be persuaded because they they won't have the knowledge or actually the skills to go and see uh, what the Lord has actually said. So with that in mind, let me take just a couple of minutes and try to explain to you how I see this and how I understand this very, um, well, I don't know what else to say, brutal command from the Lord. In Genesis 36.12, We learn that Amalek, the father of the Amalekites, was Esau's grandson. You may remember that Esau was the grandson of Abraham. 
He was the son of Isaac, and he was the older brother of Jacob. Esau was the uh, one, therefore, who was supposed to inherit the estate of Abraham and Isaac, and he was supposed to inherit all of the promises of God from his father. But unfortunately, in a fleshly moment, Esau sold everything that was belonging to him to his brother for a silly bowl of soup. And in the years that were to follow, he became a very angry man, a very bitter man, a very violent man. And the people who flowed from him uh, shared that kind of heart, and they shared those kinds of traits. At some point along the way, Esau had intimacy with one of his concubines, and a concubine was somewhere between a, a girlfriend and a wife. She became pregnant. She had a child. That child's name was Amalek. He became the father of the Amalekites, and they settled um, to the south of Israel some distance. Some 450 years later, so four and a half centuries after Amalek's birth, when Israel was being delivered out of Egypt by the mighty hand of God, Esau's people remembered their division with Jacob's people, and seeing that Israel was in a vulnerable place, they decided to attack. They should have been uh, soft before God and eager to help their, I suppose you could say, distant relatives. But instead, they decided this would be a time to come against them and attack. The story is first told in Exodus chapter 17, and uh, you can read it there on your own time. And then it's briefly reiterated in Deuteronomy 25, 7 through 19. And in that second text, we learn that the Amalekites most likely ambushed Israel from the rear of the procession forward. So if you can get in your mind the, the, the idea that Israel is, is walking like two million strong, maybe a million and a half. They're walking from Egypt up to the promised land, right? And the, the, the train of of Israelites is stretching out because not everybody is as strong as the others and not everybody can keep up. So generally speaking, the stronger would have been toward the front and the weaker would have been in the middle. And what we find from uh, Deuteronomy chapter uh, 25 is that the Amalekites ambushed Israel beginning in the rear. They cut off the weakest of the people and began to kill them. So they were brutal people is what I'm trying to say. They were looking for weaknesses, and they were more than willing to exploit those weaknesses all the way to death. And even if they had been able to work their way up the train of Israelites, which by God's grace they weren't, they never would have reached anybody who was truly strong, because Moses tells us in Deuteronomy 25 that they were all worn out from what they had been through in Egypt and from the journey up from Egypt. Israel was in no shape for a fight, but again, the heart of the Amalekites was to attack them at their point of weakness. Now, you probably remember this part of the story because Moses and Joshua then uh, went into battle. Moses specifically told Joshua to gather some troops, go into battle. Moses then went up on a hill overlooking the battlefield with Aaron, his brother-in-law, and probably with, I mean his brother, excuse me, and probably with her, who I believe was his, his brother-in-law. And there, Moses stood on that hill, and whenever he raised his hands in prayer to God and guided the Israelites' attention to God, they prevailed in the battle. And whenever Moses would become weary and let his hands droop down, 
the Israelites would be overcome in the battle. And so I'm sure you remember that what ended up happening was that Aaron went under one arm and Hur went under the other arm and they helped Moses' hands to stay up and for his heart to remain in intercession. And in this way, by the grace of God and the prayers of their leaders, the Israelites finally won the victory over the Amalekites. Having won that victory... The Lord instructed Moses to write these things down in a book and to speak them into the ears of Joshua so that he would not forget and so that Israel would not forget. And here's what the Lord said in Exodus 17:14. The Lord promised, I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. That was the word of the Lord, beloved, and it was his prerogative. He saw the evil of a of a of violence and deadly nation coming against a weak slave people who were the people of God he saw this great evil and he made a, a decision on the spot to punish it later in Deuteronomy 25 Moses lets us know that the Amalekites had no fear of God and obviously they had no respect for human life and then he told the Israelites that when they were able to settle in the land and and uh uh um, find peace and rest that God had promised to them, that they were to go and settle the score with the Amalekites. They were, if I could put it probably in a better way, they were to go and execute God's justice upon the Amalekites. So the, the Lord said this through Moses in Deuteronomy twenty five nineteen, You, Israel, shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. In other words, you shall execute God's justice. Unfortunately, Israel did forget as they forgot so many other things. And the Amalekites continued to live and they continued to prosper. And they continued to raid Israel and other peoples. They continued to wreak havoc. They continued to murder. They continued to cause all kinds of problems. Um, They continued to be a thorn in the side of anyone who was anywhere near them. In fact, when you read the book of Judges, if you're being careful about reading through those stories, you'll see that often it was the Amalekites that began to cause problems in Israel and so that God had to raise up a judge to to deal with them. So, you see, if Israel had listened to the Lord and executed his judgment upon these peoples, a lot of their troubles that came about in Judges would not have happened. But again, Israel did not listen to the Lord. This brings us to First uh, Samuel chapter 15. And there we find that the Lord still sees in these people a violent and deadly spirit and that he sees their present king as one who causes many mothers to be childless. Those are the words that are used at the end of the chapter. Now, I, I don't take this to mean that he was involved in abortion or infanticide, although you never know. But what I do take it to mean is that they were people of war, that they were constantly shedding blood, and they were constantly ruining families by taking the lives of people. These were a deadly, brutal people who lived by the sword, beloved. And as Jesus said many years later, those who live by the sword will eventually die by the sword. They will eventually reap what they sow. And by God's grace, by God's wisdom, I'm not sure that it's proper to say by his grace, but certainly by his wisdom and by his heart of justice, um, the time had come for the Amalekites indeed to reap what they had sowed. God, beloved, 
has revealed himself to be the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. But the time does come when his mercy gives way to wrath, and for the Amalekites that time had come. God was so incredibly patient with them between the time that Amalek was born and the time of the Exodus, some 450 years. He tolerated so much of their behavior. God was patient with them in the days of the Exodus itself when they were attacking his people. Surely he had spoken a harsh word against them, but the Lord is so gracious. And if they would have turned back, who knows, but that he would have relented and poured his grace upon them. You know, he could easily have just wiped them out right there on the spot. He didn't need Israel to be strong. He didn't need anybody or anything. He had just wiped out the strongest army on the earth with Israel not even lifting a finger or a sword. So God surely could have destroyed the Amalekites off the face of the earth right there on the spot, but he did not. And I can only imagine that he did not because he's gracious and he was giving them chance to repent. God was then patient with them between the days of the Exodus and the times of King Saul of First Samuel 15. Some 300 more years passed in that time. And in that time, uh, the, the Malachites continued to raid Israel. They continued to raid other peoples. They continued to kill. They continued to pillage. They continued to cause all kinds of problems. And beloved, in his wisdom, the Lord gave the Amalekites 750 years or more to come to their senses and to repent, but they would not. They would not. Please just take a few minutes and let that sink in. 750 years, three times the length of the existence of the United States. How long do you suppose we should let ISIS continue to kill people around the world? Something just this week uh, happened in Jakarta, Indonesia, where they exploded themselves near Western types of stores. And then I, I can't remember the exact place, but I even heard the day after that that something else had happened in some other part of the world. And surely this kind of thing is going to proliferate more and more and more. How long should we let them wreak havoc and death in the earth before we decisively strike out against them and stop them? How long? Well, I promise you that the Lord waited for the Amalekites, the, the day of justice for the Amalekites, a lot longer than we would have. But after 750 years, uh, the time had come, and he had had enough. And so God commanded Saul to utterly destroy the Amalekites. And beloved, who can blame him? Who can judge God? Who can accuse God? It's uncomfortable for us still. I'll admit for me, it's still uncomfortable for me to think about the the brutality and the nature of everything that happened in the beginning of First Samuel 15. But first of all, I trust the Lord and I trust his judgment. And second of all, I see it as a very graphic demonstration of how serious is the sin of us all. Although this was a very severe command, Saul went straight to work and he seemed at least to begin walking the path of obedience. He gathered his troops, some 210,000 strong, and he went down to that cursed city. And along the way, he ran into some other peoples who were innocent and should not be caught up in the mayhem that was about to engulf that place. And so he warned them to go away. They listened to him, and once they went away, he attacked the city, and he won a very decisive victory. In fact, he drove them about halfway back to Egypt and pursued them that far. It was a resounding victory. And up to this point right around to verse 7 in the chapter, it looks like Saul is finally being an obedient king. 
It looks like he's receiving the word of the Lord and being zealous to obey the word of the Lord. But unfortunately, then comes verses 8 through 9. And the first thing we're told in those verses is that King Saul allowed King Agag, the, the leader of the Amalekites at that time, he allowed him to live. And then the second thing we're told is that Saul and the people spared the best of the livestock. And in fact, they spared the best of all that was good. Whatever was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. But whatever raised above that standard, they kept alive or they took for themselves. Now, if we know much about the Bible at all, or if we've been paying attention to the flow of the story in 1 Samuel, then our antennas should be all the way up and we should be on high alert because this is not good. This is a, another story of a king only partially obeying the Lord and therefore essentially rejecting the word of the Lord. Above all things, the covenant king of the covenant people must obey the word of the Lord on behalf of the people. And in this case, beloved, the Lord was as clear as he could possibly have been about what he wanted Saul to do. But unfortunately, Saul was, was just not willing to do that. Saul set aside the word of the Lord for his own desires, for his own designs. Now, the Lord knows all things, and he knows the end from the beginning. And so it's not like Saul's actions surprised him or something like that, but if you look at verse 11, you'll see that what, you know, how this whole situation made the Lord feel. The author writes in, in verse 11 that God regretted that he had made Saul king. Um, it says specifically, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Now that word regret is, uh, is it can be in some places, I think it is in the King James if I remember right, it can be translated to repent. But at the root of this word, what it really means is to be grieved, to be deeply and, and powerfully grieved. And I think that that's what the sense is here. I don't really like the, the translation regret. Um, and the reason is because when we use that word, we, we tend to say things like, well, I, you know, I had this plan and I put it in place, but it didn't work out very well. And now, now I regret that I did that. So it kind of communicates a person who doesn't have the foresight and who didn't realize that things weren't going to go well. And, and that's certainly not true of God. God is not like us. So he, he does not uh, experience regret in the way that we experience regret. So I think the better way to understand this verse is that God was deeply and powerfully grieved. Like you might remember in Ephesians 4.30, where it tells us, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So in other words, don't break God's heart over your sin and your stubbornness and your rebellious ways. And I, I think what's happening here is that, that God was deeply, deeply grieved over Saul and over his rebellious ways, over his hard heart. Probably because Samuel was in touch with the heart of God and because he too loved Saul. Samuel was actually very angry when he received this word from the Lord. Um, I'm sure that his anger was directed at Saul and, and not at the Lord. But whatever the details of his anger were about, the bottom line is that he actually stayed up all night long that night crying out to the Lord. He was so deeply moved, so deeply grieved by what had happened that he couldn't even sleep. And so he prayed and he prayed and he called upon the name of the Lord and he asked for wisdom. He asked for courage, I'm sure. He asked for mercy. He asked for power. He asked for 
many things, but by the time that night of wrestling was over, the Lord had been clear with him, and so he set out to find Saul and confront him about what he had done, or really, in this case, failed to do. So Samuel comes to this little city, and he asks around about Saul, and he finds out that Saul had been there, but that he built a monument to himself and then went over to Gilgal. And I just find it telling that Saul built a monument to himself there. It's not unusual for kings to do, but I think it shows you where where Saul's mind was at. It, It was on himself. In his mind, he as king had just gone and won a rousing victory, and so he wanted to build a monument to let the world know about Saul rather than to let the world know about the glory of God and the grace of God. I don't know what Saul was feeling when his eyes first landed on Samuel when they met again in Gilgal, but I think if I was him, I would be feeling nervous because no matter what he was telling himself, I think he knew in the depths of his heart that he had somehow justified his sin in his heart and eventually he probably was going to be found out And so when Samuel approached him, it's just interesting to me what Saul did. He says this in verse 13. He said, Blessed be you to the Lord, Samuel. Oh, brother, it's so good to see you. You see, he's using religious language to to mask up rebellion, beloved. And, oh, we're in such danger of this. It's so easy for us to use biblical language even to, uh, to cover up our rebellion, our sin, our lack of following God. So Saul continues, he says, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. I've done everything the Lord asked me to do. Oh, really? answered Samuel. What then is this bleeding of the sheep that I can hear in my ears? And what is this lowing of the oxen that I hear? That doesn't sound like obedience to me, Saul. And then Saul answered, they. Please take note of that word, they. They have brought them from the Amalekites for the people. Not me, Samuel. It wasn't me. It was the people. The people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen. Why did they do that? Why did they do that? Watch a master mask his rebellion now with religious language. Here's why they did it. To sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Samuel knew that this was a load of manure, pardon that expression, but that's just the truth. And so he responded. He just raised his voice and said, stop, Saul. Just stop. Don't say another word. I'm going to tell you now what the Lord has said to me this night. I'm going to help you understand now how God sees the things that you have done. Though you are little in your own eyes, Saul, though surely you're tall, dark, and handsome, and people look to you, the truth is in your heart you're very insecure. And you've always been very insecure. You are in your own eyes small. But don't you remember? God has made you to be the head of the tribes of Israel. The Lord anointed you king over Israel. He made you to be the leader. He gave you authority over his sacred covenant people. Don't you remember this, Saul? And then the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Could he have been more clear when he said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Saul, this was God's battle, not yours. There was a a history here, stretching back hundreds of years. God had been so patient to a people, 
But now it was time for him to execute judgment upon those people. And he knew precisely the kind of judgment he had to execute and the extent of that judgment. And who were you to question God, Saul? Who were you to change the plans? Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of God? Beloved, Saul's heart was unmoved unmoved and he continued to try to justify himself and he said in verse 20 he said samuel i have obeyed the voice of the lord i have gone on the mission on which the lord sent me you see it's religious language trying to mask over disobedience and rebellion i have brought agag the king of amalek and i have devoted the amalekites to destruction verse 21 but the people samuel it wasn't me it was the people they took of the spoil sheep and oxen the best of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the lord your god in gilgal beloved please pay careful attention to what saul is saying here because it really reveals his heart here we see a man who is full of himself but who is at the same time actually afraid of people. I have to tell you that I believe what he says in verse 21. I believe that what happened here was that the people who had demanded that they be given a king were now making great demands of their king. I think that probably when they first heard the call to war, they were all in, they suited up, they went down to the city, but when the war began to happen and people began to die... And the, the leaders of the army of Saul saw the treasures in that city. Remember, the Amalekites pillaged people. Surely there were great treasures hidden in that city. When they saw the valuable treasures, they're like, time out. There's no way, Saul, that we're following through on this instruction of yours. There's just no way that we're going to devote all this to destruction. Look at these sheep. Look at these oxen. Look at the other livestock. Look at the gold. Look at the jewels. Look at the clothing. Look at the tents. Look at this. Look at that. There's no way that we're going to destroy these things. We are going to take the best of these things for ourselves. And of course, we'll devote them to God, of course. But then we'll devote everything that's utterly worthless in our sight. Beloved, I hope you can see that this is religious language masking rebellion. And, and Saul just fell into it lock, stock, and barrel. He was afraid of those people. What he should have done was rose up and said, No, no, God has spoken and God is clear. God doesn't need their gold. He doesn't need their jewels. He doesn't need their goods. He doesn't need their livestock. He doesn't need their anything. He is God. He has pronounced a certain level of judgment and we as his people are going to obey him all the way to the end and we're going to trust that he's going to prosper us far beyond these stolen treasures of the Amalekites. But the people wouldn't listen, beloved. And I think that Saul caved in fear before them. So just to tell you, put my cards on the table, I don't think Saul is lying here. I just think he's revealing the nature of his heart. The fear of man overshadowed the fear of God to him. But now Samuel is the one who has not moved. Samuel is completely unmoved by his argumentation. There was no excuse here. And so Samuel, moved by the Holy Spirit, uttered the sacred words of 1 Samuel fifteen twenty-two through 23. Famous words. Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices saw? as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Do you really think God needs 
all of these sheep, all of these oxen? Do you think he's really impressed with his time of sacrifice? Doesn't he care more about obeying his voice, which you clearly, clearly heard? Behold, Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is just like the sin of divination, and presumption is as the iniquity of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. For whatever reason, these words moved the heart of Saul. And I actually think I know that reason. Before, the Lord was so clear. His words were so piercing. If Saul's heart was humble, he would have been persuaded by Samuel's first round of words. But now that Samuel has put this on the table, Saul, God is going to take from you your position. He's going to take from you your place. He's going to take from you your power. Now Saul's attention is gotten. And now Saul wants to try to save the day. In other words, Saul wants to save his position and power and possessions. That's what he's really after. And so he tries to repent. And he actually admits that he has transgressed against the words of the Lord and against the words of Samuel. He admits that he had walked in the fear of people and obeyed them rather than obeying the Lord. He asks for forgiveness, and he asks for an escort into the presence of God, if you will. But, beloved, it was simply too late. And I pray that you'll really hear those words. Oh, my God, I really pray that you'll hear those words. For Saul, the moment of repentance had come, and now it was too late. That moment can come, and none of us want it to come. Oh, none of us want to come to the place where like Saul or where like Esau, we seek the Lord with tears and he says, no more. I will not hear your pleas. Samuel, as a sign of this finality and reality, turned to to walk away and to leave. But Saul grasped after him and grabbed the the edge of his robe. And instead of, of, uh, of stopping Samuel, what it ended up doing was tearing his robe. And this just became another prophetic opportunity for Samuel because he turned around and said this to Saul in verse 28. The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, Saul, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret for he is not a man that he should have. Regret. Now that's the same word that's used up in the beginning of the chapter and, and actually again at the very end of the chapter. But here it, it doesn't mean that he won't have grief like we defined the word earlier. Here what it means is he's not going to change his mind. He's not going to turn. He's not going to reverse the pronouncement he just made against Saul that he had been rejected as king. I hope you can see that what Saul is really trying to do here is save his position. I'm not sure because I don't know his heart. I'm not sure that he had any level of sincere repentance at all. But what I do know for a fact is that at heart right now, what he's trying to do is save his position. And and Samuel's response was, that's not going to happen. And the reason that's not going to happen is because God is not going to change his mind. His judgment has been pronounced in Saul. It is just flatly too late. So what Samuel is trying to say, or I think the author is trying to say in this chapter as a whole is that God is deeply grieved over the actions of Saul, but that he will not at all change his mind with regard 
to his pronouncements upon Saul. Now again, uh, or I don't mean again, I think that in order to save the, the uh, or, or to minimize the pain upon the nation of Israel and in order to exalt the name of the Lord, Samuel agreed to go with Saul to a certain extent to seek the Lord. And uh, he also asked that King Agag be brought before him. The, the king thought that he was going to receive a reprieve from Samuel, but in fact just the opposite happened. Samuel pronounced upon this king the judgment of the Lord, and then Samuel personally brought his life to an end in the presence of the Lord. And the text is actually pretty graphic with how it, um, how it relates that part of the story. Now this might seem to us like a brutal end to a sad story, but beloved, the truth of the matter is that unless we repent of our sins, we're all going to um, uh, endure a like fate. And I don't mean that we're going to die in the way that Agag died. But what I do mean is that unless we repent, we are all going to face the fullness of the fury of the wrath of God against our sins. And there won't be any way to stop it. We will prance into the the uh, uh, presence of God thinking that we're going to receive a reprieve, that surely the time of judgment has passed. And the Lord will say, oh no, oh no. It's actually time to answer for your sins. And believe me, the worst part of, of, of God's wrath upon those who will not uh, repent, the very, very worst part of his wrath, is being relationally cut off from God and being refused the right of, the right of fellowship with him. Please look with me at, at verses 34 through 35. Let's see how this story comes to an end. Then Samuel went to Ramah, where he was from, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Again, meaning that the Lord was deeply grieved over Saul's disobedience, over his rebellion, over his rejection of the will and ways in the very heart of God. In other words, one way we could put this is that God was heartbroken and therefore he broke his heart off from Saul. He refused Saul the right of fellowship with him and for the rest of his life, this was the, the, the reality in which he lived. And we're going to see in the coming weeks just how serious a thing this was and, and just the, the effects that this had on Saul's mind and on his heart and on his soul. You probably remember from other parts of 1 Samuel and uh, in the very beginning of Second Samuel, some things that are said about Saul, that he basically began to lose his mind. And I think that it's all traceable back to this moment when God uh, broke off fellowship with the disobedient king. And beloved, we would really do well to meditate well on this part of the story because the truth is that every person who refuses to, to repent of their sin will suffer a, a similar fate. They will be cut off from God. They will be cut off from the source of life and light and hope and joy and love. They will be left alone forever. And please believe me that this is no fate that anyone wants to know. And it may seem uh, brutal to us that a loving God would subject anyone to such a fate. But if it does, it's, it's only because we have yet to understand the seriousness of our sin. If we could only glimpse the deep, deep darkness that is our sin then we would instantly understand that no fate is too harsh for those who have sinned against a holy God. And beloved, all sin is against a holy God. And we would see 
that such punishment from God is proper and not brutal. We would in fact see that the offer of forgiveness is the thing that's stunning and unexpected. We would in fact stop complaining about the judgment of God and railing against him for his wrath, and we would bow down and worship and throw ourselves upon his mercy in Christ. Oh, beloved, may the Lord give us ears to hear. May the Lord give us hearts to receive today. This message is so, so important. It's deadly serious. It's eternally serious. To obey is better than sacrifice. To listen to the Lord is better than offering things to the Lord. To carefully and prayerfully do what the Lord has said is better than doing things we think would be pleasing to Him. Obedience is the path to life. Disobedience is the path to death. Surrender to the will of God is the path to eternal joy, while rejection of the will of God is the path to eternal torment. And so, beloved, please, please hear me. We would do well to learn this well. To obey is better than sacrifice. Now, I think that we, at least most of us, know and understand today that the only way to walk in this kind of obedience before God is to surrender our lives to Jesus because he is the only perfectly obedient king. He is the eternal word of God. He is the only savior of the world. He has, in fact, prepared for everyone who will believe in him the perfect and complete forgiveness of sin so that when the Lord looks at a person who has believed in Jesus, not only does he see the absence of sin, but he sees the presence of righteousness. He sees us as though we had actually obeyed everything God has ever said. And surely for none of us that's true, but in Christ that is just how profound the mercy of God is. And all we must do to enter into that kind of mercy, that kind of freedom, that kind of forgiveness, that kind of communion with God, all we have to do is believe. And beloved, when we do believe, when we obey God in this first initial way, then we gain power to understand the will of God, to understand the ways of God, to love the will and ways of God, and to do the will of God in the world. Beloved, we simply must believe in Jesus. There's no other way to walk in obedience. It's it's easy to say, and it's fairly easy to understand. To obey is better than sacrifice. But the hard thing is, is, is walking that out. And the only way we can walk it out is through belief in Jesus. It's through hope in Jesus. It's through trust in Jesus. And so knowing that we must believe, beloved, we must believe. That's the mission for today. That's the marching orders coming out of this sermon. We must believe. So go now. Go and seek the word of the Lord. Listen to the word of the Lord. Seek the heart of your Father and listen to the heart of your Father. Ask Him for power. Ask Him for desire to do His will. Go and learn what it means by the grace and power of the Holy Spirit. Go and learn what it means. To obey is better than sacrifice. Let's pray now that God would help us. Oh, my Father, I'm grateful that I had to re-preach this sermon today in this office because it's driven the truth of it deeper into my heart. I pray that you would help people listening to it. I know that I don't come off so well in contexts like this. I'm not the podcast type. But I trust you, Lord, and I trust in your word, and I pray that you would put my weakness aside and that you would exalt the greatness of your heart and the greatness of your word. And I pray that you would use this word to pierce into the hearts and minds of of whoever you would have. 
so that we might turn away from disobedience and we might turn away from divination and we might turn away from idolatry and embrace the forgiveness and the life and the hope that is in Jesus Christ. I pray that we would learn the joy of obedience. I pray that we would learn the truth that obedience is better than sacrifice. And I pray that as we do, Lord, I pray that we would bear much, much fruit to the glory of your name and the eternal joy of our souls. It is in the mighty and the merciful and the matchless name of Jesus Christ we pray these things. Amen.